Excited Utterance, the Evidence and Proof Podcast, Episode 74, Kristen Liska, Experts in the Jury Room. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your guest host, Alex Nunn, from the University of Arkansas School of Law. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence. We bring virtual workshops to you throughout the academic year. Today, our guest is Kristen Liska, a graduate of Stanford Law School. My conversation with Kristen focuses on her recent note published in the Stanford Law Review and entitled Experts in the Jury Room. As you'll hear in what I consider to be a compelling conversation, Kristen and I tackle the fascinating issue of how our legal system should handle so-called expert jurors, or jurors who bring relevant, specialized expertise into the deliberation room by way of their technical backgrounds. What should happen if, say, a heart surgeon serving on a jury confidently announces the victim's cause of death in the deliberation room without affording a defendant or an opposing party the opportunity to cross-examine that claim? What should happen if a transportation consultant tells her fellow jurors how a railroad transportation company could have avoided a particular accident? My interview with Kristen focuses on tackling these tricky questions. To begin, I first have Kristen walk us through some necessary historical background before we unpack the normative implications of expert jurors. Kristen, great to have you on the show. I'm happy to be here. And before we get started, I do just want to note um, that I am here in a personal, not an official capacity. So anything that I say reflects my own personal thoughts and does not represent the opinions of the Attorney General, the California Department of Justice, or the Office of the Solicitor General. Absolutely. And before we jump into the theoretical issues, the fascinating theoretical issues posed by so-called expert jurors, kind of the focus of your paper, I want to start our interview in the same way that you begin your project. And that's actually by situating the jury in its historical context. Now, most of our listeners are, of course, going to know that modern jurors have no pre-knowledge of the events at issue in a case. But you note, in kind of a cool move, that during the early development of the jury system, the reverse was often true. How so? So a lot of different historical scholars, and I'm not a historical scholar, so this is sort of building off of and referencing research others have done, have documented that early juries, and we're we're talking sort of back in the 12th to the 16th centuries, were expected to use their own personal knowledge when deciding their cases. So one way you sort of see this come out is that there are statutes, for instance, that require a specific number of jurors to come from the neighborhood where the events in question occurred, with the idea that those jurors would know the parties, they would know sort of what maybe happened, and they would use that background knowledge in order to help decide the case. And these people from the neighborhood were referred to as hundred doors, I think is how you pronounce it. And another piece of evidence that a lot of scholars have pointed to 
that shows how this is being done is a case from Britain called Bushel's case. And in Bushel's case, Chief Justice Vaughn was writing about whether or not a judge in a civil suit could grant a new trial because the verdict was inconsistent with the evidence. And in writing, he said that the judge could not determine if the evidence was inconsistent with what the jury decided because the judge might not know all of the evidence because the jury might have more information than the judge. So these are just some of the things that, that have been pointed to as evidence that these early jurors were sort of expected to bring in their own personal knowledge and use that knowledge when they adjudicated cases. So kind of building on that theme, you also note that up really until the 19th century, jurors were often selected because of rather than in spite of their expertise on a particular topic. So why did there historically exist this preference for expertise in the deliberation room? So these are typically what are called special juries, is what you'll see them referred to as. And I think looking to some of the examples might show why people wanted to use special juries. So one of my favorite examples, and the one that I kind of find most interesting, is the example of the jury of matrons, which is more or less the only time women served on juries back in this historical period we're talking about. And so the jury of matrons would consist of a group of women, usually 12 women, who were drawn from the community, and their job was to resolve disputes related to pregnancies. So one of the chief examples is when a woman who is convicted and sentenced to death, she might do something called, quote, pleading the belly, which was essentially saying that she could not be executed or her execution had to be postponed because she was quick with child. Obviously, if a woman is pregnant with a child, they're not going to kill the woman because that would involve also killing the child. So if a convicted female prisoner said that she was quick with child, then they would summon a jury of matrons who would get together and determine whether or not the woman was in fact pregnant and whether or not she was in fact quick with child as opposed to an earlier stage of pregnancy. Another situation where you see a jury of matrons used is a widow. If someone's husband had died and she claims to be pregnant with the deceased husband's child, they might summon a jury of matrons to determine if she's pregnant, how far along she is, which would determine if the husband was in fact, or the deceased husband was in fact, the child's father. So ordinarily, these are women who are married. Some of the historical literature suggests that they may have been trained midwives or women with some experience in midwifery, which would explain why you called on this jury. They would know more about what does it mean for a woman to be pregnant? What are the symptoms of pregnancy? How do you tell if a woman is pregnant? Then a group of men might. And given that this is going on back before you have modern obstetricians and gynecologists, those are your best group of people to tell you, is this woman pregnant or not? And another example that kind of shows, I think, the roots of what's going on here is the use of juries of merchants, which is a practice from England that you see continued in the American colonies including, I think there's some evidence of it happening even after the revolution. So you would have some sort of mercantile dispute, um, a case between two different merchants, and you'd have a jury of merchants. And they would bring in information on mercantile customs and practices, what is mercantile law. You even see, I think, some of the historical literature points to judges deferring to the juries of merchants on issues of mercantile law. And so basically their expertise helps them resolve these disputes. They have a better understanding of how would merchants typically act in these situations that make it easier for them to resolve these disputes. So I think the examples kind of show that what's motivating this is if you have a dispute that really needs specialized background information to be able to resolve it, you bring in a jury of people who would have that specialized background information to better resolve that dispute. 
And Kristen, when did this historical tendency to select jurors for their expertise or select these special juries give way to the modern rule that largely requires ignorant juries to decide cases only on the specific facts admitted into evidence? So I don't know that there's a precise date, or, or if there is, I did not run across that very helpful historical literature. Probably sometime around the 18th century, I think you start to see English scholars write around that time. They start to write about how people who have relevant knowledge should be serving as witnesses in open court. And in the 19th century, you start to see American states pass statutes that say jurors have to decide cases on the base of the evidence that was presented in court. And you just touched on this, but remind our listeners, following this historical evolution that you've just described from juror expertise to kind of an ignorant jury, what is the current state of the law regarding juror reliance on extraneous information? So under modern law, jurors are usually instructed in sort of the closing instructions a judge would give to base their verdict solely on the evidence presented in court. And courts have recognized that if a juror relies on extraneous information, usually it needs to be prejudicial extraneous information, that it can, depending, of course, on the specific facts of the case, whether or not it would have changed the outcome if there's any sort of prejudice, be the basis for a mistrial. And let's dig in here for a second, because your paper does a great job of exploring the problems associated with extraneous information in the deliberation room. So what is this prohibition of outside knowledge rooted in? So there's a couple different bases for it. One is that information coming in through a juror in the deliberation room has not gone through the usual processes that we put in place to ensure that information put before a jury is reliable. So you know, the rules of evidence exist to kind of help screen out less reliable information, to screen out information that maybe we protect for certain reasons, things that are privileged. And this is especially true when you're dealing with things that touch upon expertise, because courts usually play a very active role in screening information coming in through expert witnesses, whether under the federal system, the California system, and I'm not as familiar with other states, but I would assume they have parallel schemes where if you want to put forth expert testimony and have a witness who is certified as an expert to the jury or, or declared an expert to the jury, you have to provide the basis for that to the court so that the court can decide whether or not that witness is qualified, whether or not the information is sufficiently reliable to be put forth as expert testimony. The other concern, and this is more of a concern in a criminal context than a civil context, is that criminal defendants have a variety of rights in the Sixth Amendment, including the right of confrontation and the right to counsel. And if a juror is bringing in extraneous information in the jury room, then there's a possibility that juror can function akin to or become a, a secret witness that the defendant hasn't had a chance to confront. And that the information coming in, the defendant hasn't had the ability to rely on counsel to go through that information. And I think the Supreme Court touches on this in the decision in Turner versus Louisiana, where it says that a trial by jury implies that the evidence will come through the witness stand in a public courtroom so that the defendant's rights of confrontation, cross-examination, and counsel are fully protected. So the heart of your paper explores the tension that arises when extraneous information in the deliberation room comes not from, say, outside juror research during the trial but instead comes from the pre-existing expertise of a juror. To set the stage here, what are some examples of the types of expertise that a juror might bring into the deliberation room? Usually these cases are focused on jurors using, I guess, a technical expertise. 
it might be something that comes from training. It might be something that comes from formal education, but it's something that's beyond the average life experience or what a normal person might have. So one example might be you see a juror who's a nurse or a doctor who uses medical information to maybe diagnose a cause of death or injury in a victim. And some examples from cases, one case I thought was particularly interesting, there involved a negligence suit relating to a railroad accident. And one of the jurors had worked as a transportation consultant for years and talked to the jury in the deliberation room about how railroad crossing gates work, why would they have been feasible or not to use in this specific situation, and even drew a diagram all based on his experience as a transportation consultant showing where the gates would have been placed had they been used and why it wouldn't have worked here. And a very recent California Court of Appeal decision I actually ran across in preparing for this interview involved a faulty vineyard irrigation system. And a juror had worked for 35 years as a pipe fitter, had designed and built his own irrigation system, and then in deliberation said to the jury, well, this is the way they set it up. This is the way everybody in the industry does it. This is how I would have done it. This is how we do it. And then if anything had happened after it was installed and tested, that's the vineyard's fault. So those are just some examples and like I said, usually these cases distinguish the situation from one where a juror is using life experience that's maybe more common. So you'll see cases that distinguish away, for instance, a juror who's talking about, well, you know, drugs can impair someone's decision making, or if you drink alcohol, you don't make decisions as well. That sort of information, which is general life experiences that anyone could have, that's usually not what's being discussed in these cases. It's more like the very technical experience and expertise you gain through either a formal education like a doctor or through years of training and work like the railroad consultant and the pipe fitter. Focusing on that latter situation, uh, your paper identifies three different approaches that courts have taken in dealing with this kind of technical specialized expertise. And the first is the New York minority reproach. So what does it entail? So I think it might be helpful to maybe briefly frame this discussion. What's going on in these court cases that my note talks about is primarily an analysis of when a juror's reference to their expertise or use of expertise in deliberations is considered to have brought in extraneous information, which, as I think I mentioned, would be considered can be considered misconduct. So the court decisions are themselves basically gained at this question, what is extraneous information vis-a-vis -vis a juror's use of personal expertise? And looking through the different states and some federal cases, there look to be about roughly three different approaches, as I think you may have mentioned. The first is the New York approach, which has sort of the broadest definition of when a juror commits misconduct. This is really laid out in the decision of the New York Court of Appeals in People versus Marag, I think it's pronounced. It's spelled M-A-R-A-G-H. And in that case, two jurors in this homicide trial were also nurses, and they performed independent estimations of the victim's blood loss using their own personal experience. The New York Court of Appeals then held that in doing so, the jurors committed misconduct by bringing in extraneous information. It then laid out what has become a three-part test for determining when misconduct occurs. Um, namely, one, a juror conducts personal specialized assessments not within the common ken of juror experience and knowledge. Two, those assessments concern a material issue in the case. And three, the juror communicates that expert opinion to the rest of the jury panel with the force of private, untested truth as though it were evidence. Fantastic. And you contrast that kind of minority New York approach with a second approach, what's referred to as the, quote, majority approach. So how does the majority approach handle juror expertise, and how does it differ from that New York approach? 
So the vast majority of cases, uh, New York is pretty much the only one I think that uses the minority approach. And then there's two states I found with the sort of middle ground approach that I, I bet we'll get to later on. The majority approach is, is basically everyone else and does not really restrict a juror's use of expertise during deliberations at all. The Oklahoma Supreme Court had a good summary of the approach in Kendrick versus Pippin when it said that, quote, a juror's interdeliberational statements when based on personal knowledge and experience, do not constitute extraneous prejudicial information. And the case that's usually cited for this is the New Mexico Supreme Court's decision in People versus Man. So in Man, a juror who was an engineer performed a series of calculations to determine the probability that the defendant's theory of the case, which was that the victim accidentally fell on a screwdriver, was true. And these calculations were very similar to those an expert witness had performed. And the New Mexico Supreme Court held that those calculations were not extraneous information because they came out of the juror's own mental processes and the evidence from trial and expressed concern that taking an approach like New York does would result in a chilling effect on jury deliberations. So under this approach, basically any information that is being used or any reliance and expertise is permissible in a juror. Well, you correctly predicted my next move, because I do want to take a look at this third middle approach, which you identify as having effect in California and Washington. So how do those states treat expert jurors? Those two states, which is where mainly where I found this, although I think the note also discusses some states that might be harder to classify or that haven't really clearly laid out where they are. This middle approach adapts what is basically a fact-opinion dichotomy. So the courts permit expert jurors to use their expertise in issuing an opinion that is grounded solely on the evidence admitted, but they're not allowed to use expertise or come up with an opinion that brings in specific extra evidence into deliberation. So the California Supreme Court and Reem alone kind of lays this out fairly nicely. They said that it's proper for a juror to, quote, express an opinion on a technical subject as long as that is based on the evidence at trial but that it is not proper for a juror to, quote, discuss an opinion explicitly based on specialized information obtained from outside sources. And the facts in Malone have a good example of what is prohibited. In that particular case, there was a polygraph exam that was admitted into evidence, and a juror was a psychologist, discussed the polygraph exam, and in doing so referenced specific studies that were not in evidence about the reliability of polygraph exams. And the court concluded that by referencing those specific studies, those were very specific non-record facts, and so the juror brought in extraneous information. There's also a Washington Court of Appeals opinion, Long versus Brusco Tug and Barge, that kind of illustrates this distinction by looking at prior Washington cases. So it highlights cases that found misconduct, like a case where a juror brought in specific facts, such as the average salary of pilots working for a particular airline, or salaries that specific government employees would make. And those were the sorts of cases that found misconduct, but cases where there were just sort of opinions about things that were not really tied to these specific facts or bringing in specific facts, such as a case where a juror expressed an opinion about whether a mother's illness could have caused a medical problem based on his life experience, those were found to be not misconduct. So the heart of this really boils down to is the juror's use of expertise bringing in very specific pieces of evidence or facts, or is the juror's use of expertise just sort of an opinion based on evidence at trial alone? So on the table now, we have three different potential responses to the problems posed by juror expertise. We've discussed the New York minority approach, the middle approach that has effect in California and Washington, and of course, the majority approach that the other states take. Kristen, 
which of these approaches do you find the most compelling or at least the most desirable on a normative level? So I'm more inclined to adopt an approach, either the minority approach or the middle ground approach that California and Washington takes. I don't necessarily have a very strong opinion on this, but it seems to me that what's really problematic or I have found most problematic in these cases is when jurors are really bringing in very specific extra record facts. So like the psychologist in Malone, who's talking about specific studies the jury didn't see, or I think an example I use in the note is if there were a juror who were to go look up, say, the side effects of a drug in a physician's desk reference and then come into the deliberations and say, oh, hey, yesterday I looked up this drug that was referenced here, are the side effects. That's clearly problematic. And most courts would say that that's misconduct. You can't just go look up information like that. But yet if it's a doctor who's in the room and who already has his information memorized because he he works with this drug a lot – it seems to me equally problematic if the doctor starts saying, oh, this drug that was mentioned during trial, these are all the side effects. I know this because I'm a doctor. And so in that sense, I would favor trying to find a way to restrict that type of behavior that's so much akin to what is clearly misconduct under the way courts understand this approach. Whether you adopt a fact of opinion at dichotomy or approach more like the minority approach that's very expansive – I think there are pros and cons to both. The fact-opinion dichotomy can be a little bit hard to discern when is somebody bringing in new information, when is an opinion really based on the information at trial or based on other specific information that person has. So I can see why you might favor just expansive to avoid having to draw lines or, on the other hand, might say, look, having jurors bring in their own expertise and give opinions is part of the point of having jury deliberations. You want jurors to bring unique perspectives in. And so it makes sense to let experts also bring in that perspective and their expertise as part of their perspective. So we'd like them to have some freedom to opine on the evidence, but not, you know, so much freedom they're doing what we think is a problem when jurors go out and seek that information. I want to build on your comments here because they're quite fascinating. And your paper also offers additional solutions to the problems posed by juror expertise. So Kristen, what's a first additional step that courts can take to combat inappropriate juror expertise in the deliberation room? So I think this kind of touches back on the framing I talked about earlier. These cases are really focused on post hoc situations. The deliberations are over. We know the jurors did things. Was their conduct permissible or not? And how do we define extraneous information when we're talking about a juror's own use of their own knowledge and expertise? These sort of additional steps look at this from a different angle. And the question is not post hoc what has happened and post hoc was it permissible, but rather what can we do to avoid putting ourselves in situations where jurors could potentially be using their informa- their expertise in problematic or improper ways, especially given that, you know, I'm sure evidence people know, courts are very hesitant to start looking at what was said in deliberations, what jurors did, and there's a general sense that that's a black box that we don't want to peer inside for a lot of good reasons. So one possible way to come at this issue from the front end, which is what New York actually does, is to have a limiting instruction that explains to jurors what they can do with their relevant expertise, how can they use it in the course of a trial. So it might say something like in the fact-opinion dichotomy, or the, the middle ground might say something like, you know, it's okay for you to use your experience and technical expertise to you know, give opinions based on the evidence, but you may not use it to bring in specific facts not in evidence. And, and I think my note has the language that New York actually uses for their instruction. I don't have that in front of me at this exact moment, though. The downfall of this being, of course, 
there's some empirical research that suggests that juries may not actually be that good at following instructions. It might be confusing. You might have jurors err on the side of caution of just not saying anything, so it could chill deliberations. And Kristen, your paper also identifies a second mitigating step that courts can take to address this issue. What's that second step? So the second step or solution, which is the approach I am more inclined to favor, would be to expand the ability of parties to use strikes for cause so that they could use such strikes to remove jurors who might pose problems. So these would be jurors who would be considered experts, and it would be easy for courts to rely on or import the body of case law built up when it comes to expert witness qualifications and use sort of a similar test to determine if a juror is an expert in this arena. And that expertise would need to be relevant to a material fact and dispute, since this is not so much a problem if you have, say, an accountant on a murder trial where the dispute is about how the victim died, that technical background of being an accountant isn't likely to have any impact on the issues that are at play there. And so if you had a situation where a juror was an expert and that expertise was relevant to a material fact and dispute, the parties could strike that juror for cause without any need to prove bias. And the biggest hurdle to sort of using this approach now is that expertise isn't often inherently biased towards one party or the other. Take, for instance, that accountant example. Maybe you have a situation where a defendant is put on trial for committing some sort of financial fraud. The accountant may not necessarily be inherently inclined to favor the criminal defendant or to favor the government just because he's an accountant. And it's hard to know if his expertise or her expertise would play out in the deliberation room skewed towards one side or another, in contrast to, say, a juror who is a crime victim who might be more likely to favor the government versus somebody who is accused of committing a crime. So you would need to make it so that the parties could remove these expert jurors without having to prove bias. This approach definitely removes the possibility for those jurors to be problems inside the deliberation room because they're not on the jury to begin with. So it also helps avoid needing to peer into the jury room to determine if somebody did or did not behave properly or improperly during deliberations. And I don't know that it will have too much of a chilling effect on deliberations or that it will make it so that we we lose the diversity of voices in the jury and that you're very much talking about jurors with specific expertise relevant to the facts in dispute at that trial. So this isn't like a categorical bar on all doctors serving on all juries or all accountants serving on all juries. It's just if the cause of death is disputed, the parties can get rid of the doctors. And if it's a tax fraud case, the parties can get rid of the accountants, but not vice versa. Last question, Kristen. What's next for the literature here? What type of paper would shed additional insight into this issue? So it's possible that some additional historical research, it might be interesting to look, for instance, at what caused this shift in the view of the jury. I think we talked about how, historically speaking, jurors used to do a lot more of bringing in their own expertise and knowledge than they do today. There's not a lot of discussion of this. I couldn't find any good discussion to sort of explain why this shift took place. It it doesn't look like it's tied to the rise of evidence law. So some historical research might be interesting there. The other one that might be really interesting is I suspect that there is some interplay going on when looking at how the different state courts have treated and defined extraneous information with respect to jurors using expertise and how they generally define what it means to bring in extraneous information. I think I mentioned the Mann case earlier on, and that case definitely frames this as 
not a problem that the jurors were making these calculations because they stem from their own mental processes and the evidence from trial. So you see some states approach extraneous information as information that comes from outside the jury room. So if it walks in with the juror, it's not extraneous. But you also see some places that define extraneous information as information that comes from outside the trial process. And in that situation, you could see how a juror who is bringing in sort of the specific facts like the psychologist in Malone are bringing in extraneous information because it's information from outside the trial process. So I think that there might be some linkage going on here. And it might be interesting to look a little bit further at how do states generally define extraneous information? What differences are there? And then if there's some linkage between how they approach expert jurors and that definition. I do admit, though, it's entirely possible someone has a very great article on what extraneous information means in all the different states. And I apologize to that person if I have ignored them. Well, Kristen, this has been an absolutely fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Rule 606B, otherwise known as the no impeachment rule, has had something of a rough going in the last few years. Historically, of course, the no impeachment rule has largely been the means of protecting the legitimacy of jury verdicts. To borrow from George Fisher, for example, it has perpetuated our systemic faith in the collective wisdom of the common man, largely by concealing rather than excluding irregularities, mistakes, or, shall we say, deviations from the proper decision-making methodology in the deliberation room. But as I just mentioned, especially in recent years, criticism against Rule 606B has started to mount. And importantly, this criticism has been well warranted. Consider, for example, how that criticism manifested in the recent Supreme Court decision, Peña Rodriguez v. Colorado, where the court recognized, correctly in my mind and in the minds of many scholars, that Rule 606B's aim to protect juror deliberations is an interest that is subordinate to the need to root out racial animus in the deliberation room. Similarly, in Rines v. Young, petitioners argued that Rule 606B should not provide protection for juror animus based on sexual orientation during deliberations. And in a host of academic papers, including one by Excited Utterance Episode 71 interviewee Katie Hicks, Scholars have nearly unanimously criticized Rule 606B in concealing inappropriate juror behavior and decision-making methodology. Into this fray enters Kristen's paper, which provides a new and compelling reason for us to think critically about the continued longevity of Rule 606B. How will litigants respond if an expert juror, untested by the adversarial process, is able to play a determinative role during deliberations? How will litigants respond if expert jurors opine on engineering, medical, and other forms of specialized knowledge, completely bypassing those central confrontation and admissibility requirements? As individuals in the workforce become more specialized, and their expertise increasingly enters the deliberation room unchecked, how might perceptions of jury proceedings change, especially in those majority of jurisdictions which do not consider expert juror knowledge to be extraneous prejudicial information? For me, this boils down to a question of legitimacy. The authority of the jury, like the judiciary, rests in its legitimacy. 
That is, criminal adjudication, and in fact much of our juridical system really, relies on the populace viewing jury verdicts as worthy of deference and acceptance, even in the face of substantive disagreements about a particular verdict. But history also demonstrates that legitimacy, especially as it relates to the jury, is a dynamic, not a static concept. As the centuries have passed, perceptions as to what constitutes an acceptable means of determining a legal verdict have of course radically evolved. Just consider, for example, something that Kristen mentioned today. Special juries, such as juries of matrons or juries of merchants, were once expressly purposed at bringing expertise into the deliberation room. Where the law once welcomed outside, untested expertise into the jury room, now there largely exists a distaste for the same. A procedure that served one generation well might be seen as entirely insufficient or even inappropriate by the next. And perhaps just this sort of evolution is on the horizon for Rule 606b. In his recent scholarship on modern notions of procedural fairness and legitimacy, Yale Law professor Tom Tyler has found that in today's world, people support the authority of legal decision makers only when they respect them as, quote, an institution that is generally impartial, just, and competent. That is, modern notions of legitimacy and procedural fairness require transparency. Litigants will accept outcomes, even those with which they disagree, when they can see that their claims were fairly and appropriately considered. Of course, elephant in the room, Rule 606b doesn't exactly advance that aim nor does the majority approach to handling expert jurors in the deliberation room. They conceal where legitimacy demands transparency. The dilemma, therefore, is pretty clear. Ultimately, something's got to give. And perhaps the next evolution of jury decision-making will see a departure from the majority approach of just kind of ignoring expert jurors. Perhaps the next evolution will move us away from strict adherence to Rule 606b. Support for Excited Utterance is generously provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Brandstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program, as well as the Vanderbilt Institute for Digital Learning. Excited Utterance is produced by Ed Chang, and the production editor is Grace DiPietro. Additional production assistance is provided by Francesca Rutherford, and music is provided by the Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music's Children's Cello Choir under the direction of Kirsten Castle Greer. I'm your guest host, Alex Nunn, and I hope that you will join us next time when we take on another work in the world of evidence and proof. <laughs>